Most startups intentionally get a product in their hands of customers as soon as possible, right? To get that feedback cycle iteration loop going. And that's the number one piece of advice that most founders follow. That's Arjun, the founder of Materialize. They've raised over $100 million. So what do you do if you're working on something that just takes longer to build the MVP? You have to get this loop going differently. How to concurrently execute some amount of go-to-market, even though you can't take money for your product from customers. What you can't do is show people the demo. What you can do is show people your architecture, your design, and get people to validate that this is something that they would use in the fullness of time. Question here is, how do you get the funding if you don't have an MVP? To begin to answer that, I asked him to share his pitch that he shared early investors that got them the money. Uber, Netflix, these companies have extremely large and sophisticated engineering organizations building streaming microservices, probably the, the most sophisticated on the planet. But every company could benefit from the same level of low latency personalization. Very few companies can follow the same hiring strategy as an Uber or Netflix. And so if you build a piece of infrastructure that allows a democratization of the kinds of companies that can build and maintain real-time experiences, you'll see adoption. We're on a mission to help founders hit product market fit faster. We do this by interviewing founders that have been there. I'm your host, Adam O'Donnell. This podcast is put together by Zendesk for startups. We offer six months free of Zendesk customer support suite for qualified product-oriented companies. This week's partner shout out goes to First CapChase, a non-dilutive growth financing solution for SaaS companies. Email ian.garrett at capchase.com and mention this podcast to get 10% off and Founders Pass. They're a perk and discount platform for startups, giving away over a million dollars in discounts on software, tools, business services. Check them out. Arjun, welcome to Sit Down Startup Founder Podcast. Super excited to have you here to share your story at Materialize. But first, can you tell us how big the company is, how much money you've raised, what you're working on, and then we'll dive in. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So I'm Arjun, uh, co-founder of Materialize. We're about a little over four years old. Um, raised a little over $100 million. Uh, we have about a little under 100 people at the company, about 90. That's amazing. And wh what are you working on? So Materialize is a data warehouse for your operational needs. So it's real time, unlike most analytic data warehouses, which are made for historical analyses. It is for uses where you want to build data-driven products and services, and you want your analytics queries to feed directly into the product experience that your customers have. So think personalization uh, for, say, a customer-facing website or uh, real-time analytics or improving the back end, so in, 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 in a physical warehouse uh, as opposed to a data warehouse where you want people working that physical warehouse to have the up-to-date supply chain inventory uh, numbers uh, to do their job as efficiently as possible. So operational use cases as opposed to historical analytical use cases. Mm, well, and that's where the power is. <laughs> We're able to make those decisions quickly and then suggest it within the product. That's really cool. Um, I mean, so just like zooming out before you got to this incredibly successful company, like y'all have obviously hit product market fit at that size. Um, where did you grow up? Kind of give me your story, like when you first kind of realized that you wanted to be a founder. So I grew up um, in India, in Bangalore, uh, and came to the United States for college. Stayed here for, for a PhD in distributed systems and databases, which I sort of fell into by accident. Uh, I, I, I first started doing privacy and security of distributed systems and databases, 
and then sort of zoomed out and realized that I actually like distributed systems and databases more than I like privacy and security and sort of started focusing on the more general problem of just databases. Uh, then I worked on a, I, I worked at a database company, Cockroach Labs, which I joined uh, when it was about, about 20 people or less, um, right about 20 people, I would say, um, and was there for, for a little under three years uh, as it grew in scale and found product market fit. And I started Materialize after that. So I've been, so I sort of fell into databases and distributed systems um, in, a, in, in a bit of a roundabout way, but I did, you know, and I, I did go into this with the uh, desire to do a PhD, which I guess is a pretty uh, involved decision. Two decisions I wanted to zoom in on that for founders who might be in that position is like the decision to move to the U.S., I know you did it super early, but like, I can only imagine what that was like when you first arrived, but it, can you share anything about like the challenges of that decision? So I knew pretty early on that I wanted to come to the United States. And I think that's not an uncommon path for a lot of people across the world, which is, um, it's where the action is and it's where you kind of want to be. Um, and, and I, I don't know at what point I made that decision, but it was certainly, I was maybe 11 or 12 or 13 or something of that sort. Um, and when I got here, I got here for college. Um, I That was maybe the strange experience was when you're so focused on getting to the United States, uh, the, the earliest you possibly can do that on your own is college. Uh, so you apply to a college based off of random statistical information that you have. Um, and I applied to a bunch of colleges and I, and, and you go to the ones that accept you, right? And then how do you choose the ones that, between the ones that accept you through some uh, uh, opaque rankings that you have access to because you've never been to the United States. So I, uh, I went to Williams College, which was the number one ranked liberal arts college, uh, which uh, turns out is in the middle of nowhere in Western Massachusetts. You sort of get airdropped into rural Massachusetts. And then you're like, hang on a second. Uh, I have no idea what what rural Massachusetts even is. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience, right? So I I, I, I I went there because it was very highly ranked because what else, if you have no other objective information, that's the, that's the closest you're going to get to help make a decision. Uh, but the actual experience of it was wonderful. It, it was mm. the perfect place to, if you want to end up um, in a random location in the United States, a small idyllic New England college town is probably the best it's ever going to be. That is really cool. I can only imagine the shock and just kind of adjustment at the same time. But um, the other decision in your story was that decision to leave Cockroach Labs or to just move from that and actually do your own startup. Uh, can you tell us like what was going through your head? How are you ranking that decision? So I knew I uh, wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, it's why I did a PhD in computer science. Um, out of undergrad, I felt I did not know enough about computers to do anything with, um, with a deep with 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 a deep understanding of of some some sort of technological differentiation. Uh, I really admired the Google founders who had essentially commercialized insights into linear algebra and distributed computing that they had come about through PhD research. Uh, and I want to do something something of that sort, which is how I ended up going into a uh, PhD myself. Uh, I wanted to go very deep and sort of essentially invent something. Um, I did not end up doing that. I ended up coming across a lot of very exciting research that I thought was very foundational to 
what I believe would be the next generation of distributed computing innovations. Um, one of those is, was my co-founder, my now co-founder, at, at the time he was a researcher at Microsoft Research, Frank McSherry, had done a lot of research on cutting edge distributed stream processing and distributed data processing in general that I thought was extremely ripe for commercialization because he had done a ton of, of uh, innovations that when stacked upon each other resulted, he had won a bunch of academic awards, uh, but it really allowed for a step function change in what you could compute and, and, and the, the, the speed at which you could compute them. Separately, I was also very interested in sort of distributed databases in general, and, and particularly those that, that were really easy to use and gave people the power of you know, globe spanning, spanning clusters of, 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 of uh, databases, but easy to use as it was a single node on your, on your laptop. Um, one of those was Google Spanner that Google had come up with to make building global scale applications easier for the Google developer. Um, and Cockroach Labs was an open source clone of that. And that's how I found them. So I was looking for startups that were in the mold of taking something very technically innovative, but complex and commercializing them with intent. And that's how I ended up at Cockroach. Meanwhile, I'd kept on a uh, friendship and relationship with uh, Frank, because I had approached him and said, hey, are you thinking of commercializing this stuff that you were doing? He was like, no, I want to be an academic. I was like, well, okay, um, I'll go do something else. And I ended up at Cockroach. And over time, I convinced him to start a company uh, my initial intention was for him to start a company that I could just at least work at. Um, and over the years after I, he was like, why should he, he was very uh, skeptical or initially very skeptical and then very curious. And I sort of have to walk him through sort of a classic academic was like, what is a company? Like, what is a corporation? What, why does it need to exist? How do you pay employees? Like, uh, why do you need employees? Uh, what, what will they do? Who will manage them? Uh, you know, Essentially, once I walked him through so many aspects of it, he was like, okay, um, sounds like you know a lot about this. Do you want to do it with me? Um, and that's sort of how I fell into starting Materialize with Frank, because it really is his innovation and invention um, that, that I was looking at from the outside. That is really cool, man. Well, so let's just go right into it. Like starting Materialize, you you come together in this. How 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 is that overlap uh, when you were working at Cockroach before, were you working, did you kind of start the company when you were technically there? Was there some like moonlighting stuff that was going on? And I, I'm, I don't know if this puts you in a weird position, so but just were, No, no, not at all. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful story because I was very open about it with the founders of Cockroach, including the CTO, uh, who was my manager at the time. I was a software engineer. Um, I, I was very open that, there was this possibility. Uh, they were incredibly supportive. The CEO and CTO, Spencer and Peter, wrote the first and second check into Materialize. Uh, they helped me. Uh, they, they they helped me incorporate it. They gave me a lot of guidance. Introduced me to VCs, including their VCs. Uh, gave me a lot of sound advice about how to go about, um, you know, composing the initial set of, of 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 employees that are so critical to getting a company off the ground. Uh, and, and they were very supportive throughout, not just with their money, uh, which is significant, but also their time and their 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 thoughtfulness. So it was very much um, the first VC I pitched was in the cockroach offices because Spencer introduced me. And at some point, I remember telling Spencer because um, he had 
I, I, I was like, I'm going to wait to cash this check until like my last day because it just sort of feels weird. It was a check from him. So <laughs> everything was completely above board, right? So it was like, he, he was the one writing the check um, and, and, and uh, uh, making all these introductions. That's amazing. Tell, tell me what it was like when you decided to tell them that you were working on something like this. Like, how did you even begin to feel comfortable to share with your basically current manager that you're working on another startup that could cause so you it to wasn't, leave? So, so I, it, was, it was purely at the idea stage, right? It was like, well, like I'd been talking to Frank and Frank was um, open to it. He was like, oh, we should do this together. And I immediately went to Spencer, um, the CEO, and said, hey, Frank has said... He wants to do this with me. Um, I'd like your advice on, you know, what to do. And Spencer was like, this sounds like a great idea. You should do it. Like, there's no, you know, because at that time I was still a little, um, I was like, should I do this? Was the sort of the question on my mind. And Spencer was like, absolute no-brainer. You absolutely should. I, I will I will invest. I would love to invest. Um, and and that, that was very helpful, right? Um, conviction from your... The, the, the people you look up to is, is I think a huge part of what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley is uh, that's the support. Yeah, that is really cool. So you, you start your first day it materialized after cashing the check. How did things go for the next, say, six months to 12 months? So we had an initial group of four, uh, five people. Um, and, and, and step one was building out the uh, scaffolding of the product, just the sort of what I would say, um, the tech that was. So now now this is a database, right? So it's like a huge surface area to build. Uh, and it took us, I want to say, eight months or nine months um, in order to get a what we call a V0.1, that sort of end-to-end -end test of, of what we think materialized should look like. Uh, and in parallel, we, we spent, uh, I spent a fair amount of time recruiting and building uh, the the engineering team, uh, hiring more engineers to come work on 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 uh, materialize. While Frank and our now CTO Nikhil, who who was our first engineer, and then another one of the engineers, um, they were rapidly building out you know large parts of the surface area of the database, the SQL query processing, the uh, the um, you know orchestration layer, things like that. The, the, the what, what's interesting about this business is it's a database, which is a very weird and sort of outlier style business because most startups get and, and they, 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 they intentionally get a product in their hands of customers as soon as possible, right? To get that feedback cycle iteration loop going. And that's the number one piece of advice that most, let's say, correctly, most, uh, founders follow. Uh, database is very different. It takes multiple years. Uh, the MVP for a database is like shockingly large. It's very much a, you have to build multiple years worth of R&D in order to get something before the first customer will give you money in exchange for the product. As a result, you have to get this loop going differently, right? Um, and this was what I really learned at Cockroach um, was the go-to-market how to concurrently execute some amount of go to market, even though you can't take money for your product from customers, what you can't do is show people the demo. What you can do is show people your architecture, your design, and get people to um, 
validate that this is something that they would use in the fullness of time. Um, and part of that is the, 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 the so, so materialize is source available. You can go read all of our source code on, on GitHub. Uh, it is not under a formal open source approved license, right? So that's why we don't we call it source available and not open source. Nevertheless, the real goal is to let people peek under the hood and form their own opinions. And then we do a lot of technical blogging and you know, giving talks in order to get people to see the value of a system like Materialize in their company's data architecture. Um, and that actually gets this going um, sooner. And so, so we did this uh, about, we started the company in early 2019 and then, you know, eight months in was, I believe, Feb 2020. And we launched this and first thing that within hours, it was the top of Hacker News. We got a lot of, you know, feedback and, and you know, it's Hacker News. So, you know, some of it is, is good. Um, a lot of positive uh, reinforcement, a lot of validation. And then of course, COVID happens like a month after it, it's early 2020. Um, and, and that was probably the most stressful time of the of, of, of being, I, I guess for everybody in every aspect, but be, I, I felt uh, for me personally, just being responsible for the livelihood of like a dozen employees. What a story. So I, I'm, I'm trying to find the best thing that's going to help founders because what you, you basically were able to raise enough money without anything, without any validation on the actual go to market, other than the fact that like you had just like strong conviction, you had people who had, like at, at Cockroach who trusted in you and were actually willing to write a check. So it's huge validation potentially there. But I'm just curious, tell me your funding conversations with DCs to be able to even fund this since it is such a long cycle. So the first, the first, um, I remember the first conversation I had with every VC that I talked to is, uh, this is going to take, you know, hundred million dollars pre-revenue in order to just afford the R&D required to build the database. Um, we very deliberately restricted the set of investors we talked to, to investors who had invested in databases before, because fundamentally, uh, this was particularly important after, um, Snowflake IPO because after Snowflake IPO, everybody wanted to invest in databases, and there was a there was a lot more what I, what I call tourist money, and it was like no no like we, we you cannot talk to people who don't know what they're signing up for because is this is not the level this is not the kind of de-risked business that you could just sort of look at the PNL and independently say hey you know this is this is and and you obviously want to get there right like like in investment and fundraising is a journey towards eventually being the kind of business that is robust and makes sense to somebody who doesn't understand the technology. But in the very earliest days, that's not true at all. You need somebody who deeply understands the value of the technology, the specific insertion, the path and the reasons why someone would choose your technology and then and then over time you can get less and less sophisticated along this as you as you grow towards being a public company so it's it's reaching out to people who understand that and they um, what what was your pitch like that coffee maybe you could like take us back to like a, a coffee conversation with an investor who was in that list of they understood it they got it what was that quick pitch to them it was very much uh you know, a lot of companies are using stream processing technologies and real-time um, sort of 
message brokers to move data around very manually building microservices because there's a tremendous amount of value to acting on data on very short timeframes, right? So when a customer is on your website, if you can do some personalization, some recommendations that are tailored to everything you know about that customer, there's a meaningful uplift to, to let's say, site conversion, checkout conversion, or things like that. Um, and, and, and the reason we know this is because large companies invest a tremendous amount of engineering time and money in order to do these things. The problem is it's very difficult to build real-time infrastructure because everything today has to be done manually. Um, if you're building a microservice, essentially you're programming and orchestrating a large, it's gonna take a team of three to four engineers, they're gonna run all call on call pager. You're looking at a, at a minimum investment of, of, of headcount uh, of a million dollars plus to do anything in real time. Um, and if we could lower the cost of building real time experiences, um, a lot more people are gonna build a lot more use cases that are real time because uh, the, the, the ROI is definitely there, the value is there. People are restricted in, in, in what they can build with today's tools and technologies. And the tool and technology that most people are already familiar with is the database. If you could build a SQL database that acted in you know, milliseconds, tens of milliseconds updated on the latest data, the same skills that they use today for batch analytics that they use to build and 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 do historical analysis that runs once a day in a batch shop, those skills would translate directly over into building and maintaining operational data services for that would be customer facing. And and that would be extremely attractive to every organization that can hire and train and retain people who can write SQL queries, uh, but they can't afford the investment to, you know, maintain teams of, of 100 plus uh, data engineers building and maintaining microservices. A few companies can, right? So um, a good way to think about this is uh, you know, Uber, Netflix, these companies have extremely large and sophisticated engineering organizations building streaming microservices, probably the, the most sophisticated on the planet. But every company could benefit from the same level of low latency personalization, dynamic pricing, name what you will that they're doing, right? Um, the, the operational sort of intelligence as to, as to what uh, content is working, what, uh, what people are, uh, what issues people are facing, um, in real time for their ops teams. But very few companies can hire, can, can follow the same hiring strategy as an Uber or Netflix. Um, and so if you build a piece of infrastructure that allows a democratization of the kinds of companies that can build and maintain real time experiences, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see adoption throughout the economy. I love it. And you led with that. So they're either in, they're out, they either believe that thesis or not. And they're not going to say, they're not going to say, well, make sure you get something out in like a month or two uh, to to continue to validate because it's almost like a cancer problem. Like, it's like, of course, if you can do that, people will buy it and yes. it'll open up the market. Yes. And a lot of the diligence that they did was whether this technology was real, right? So it was very much a, this is the thing that everybody's wanted for decades. 
and the technology is finally ready. How do you diligence that? Well, take a look at the technological track record of the of of uh, the people who built this technology. And so you need investors who are capable of diligencing that and are capable of understanding that. So they need to be on some level, you know, deep technologists who who happen to be sitting on the other side of uh, the uh, VC, uh, I guess, uh, line. That Yeah, it sounds like maybe one day you'll be in that same position, <laughs> or oh, maybe God, you already no. are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. Well, if you had to answer, when do you think you hit product market fit? What would you say? Because I'm trying to summarize I, what I think I would say for you. I think it's more of a spectrum than a like single moment where... We it it it's, it rarely goes from, um, you know, we have no idea what we're doing. We're stumbling in the darkness, and then suddenly it, you you find the light switch, and then everything's perfectly clear. I think it's actually more of a spectrum across a variety of different groups, right? So, the first one was when we launched publicly. There was a deep amount of resonance amongst very sophisticated. What I say, the CTO or architect persona, were like, aha, this is the principled way to approach this problem. And I have a bunch of dirty hacks littered throughout my organization in order to cobble together something that approximates this, right? So that was the, I would say that's the first moment that's not product market fit, but it is, it is the first sign that you're onto something when you're, when you're, when you're building a technology like this. And that's a huge reason to build in the open. Because if you took multiple years to build a product in stealth, you are not talking to this persona. This persona is not aware of you and you're not getting that feedback, right? So that was incredibly valuable, I would say, as the first step. The second one is whether you have early adopters who are willing, who have such high pain that they're willing, because that's, that's the only people who are going to buy an experimental startup database, right? Which is... For the database is the most typically the most risk averse part of your architecture. You only go for the tried and tested. Um, who's going to take a bet on a startup's database? It's somebody whose other options or the existing option is much much worse, right? It's like the pain is so high that they've built so much custom bug ridden microservices that your startup database is actually an improvement over the status quo, right? And so the landing the first customer is 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 a huge step in 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 this journey. I'd say from that point on to like you know ten customers. I think ten customers is when you have sort of something um, million dollars of revenue is another another point. Um, the, the 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 surprising things about databases it's not like you, you it's not like you get to a thousand customers quickly because it's such a it's such a huge investment on both a dollars basis and on a like sort of fundamental architecture uh, basis. I'd say I'd say a huge point of validation for me personally was when we landed that first uh, $100,000 plus customer, right? Which is, you know, customers taking a serious, who's, who's viewing this as a serious uh, part of their data infrastructure. Yeah, there, and, and that's always, that seems like the best answer. I appreciate just the authenticity in that and what a, what a really cool story um I, I think i know it's going to help a lot of founders just hearing like how you thought about this how you got there um this has been amazing what's the best way to reach out to you if i'm a founder and i know you're probably too busy but if it is it linkedin or twitter if you had to pick it's probably twitter um yeah i i don't tweet that often you know the the website has is evolved over the years uh as is my engagement with it but uh, i've still sort of 
somewhat active there. Um, you can find me at Narayan Arjun, my last name and my first name. Some other guy took the first name, last name. <laughs> I've been there. Arjun, thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Zendesk for startups, check out our website, zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're always looking to improve. So don't hesitate to email me with any feedback on how we can ask better questions, guests to target, or anything else so we can do to better help you as a founder. My email is adam.odonnell at zendesk.com.